Hey team, just a quick note before we get started, this episode is brought to you by Matrixport and Coinbase Prime. Big thanks to them for making the show possible. You'll hear more about them later. Now on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On The Margin. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, co-host Mr. Mark Yusko. What's going on, Mark? Oh, everything was was great. I'm here in Chicago at this lovely Airbnb. Actually, it was awesome. Uh, with my brother-in-laws for one of their 50th birthday. Mm. Can do a little Cubs game this afternoon, a little Notre Dame game tomorrow, and then this crap FUD just explodes. Although, Michael, it, it might be more than FUD this time. I mean, China is, is getting serious, but I don't want to derail our whole show. We have this great show planned. And <laughs> I know, I know. I, I dream of a day, Mark, one day when we cannot talk about China, but if it's Evergrande or crypto... We got to keep talking about yeah, <laughs> what's talk going about on it. over there. Uh, I got I to gotta point out one thing, actually, before you'll notice, I, I got a haircut uh, for this uh, on the margin because in, in the comments, you get called a silver fox. And uh, I got a comment that it looked like I was trying to join a Cure Revival band. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, when the people say that, uh, <laughs> it's time you got to get a haircut. <laughs> I love it. Um, I love it. Looks good. Looks good. All right. Sharp. So, so you're right. We got to be. We got to talk about China eventually. But I do want to go through our charts, and then we'll kind of talk about what's going on in China. How much should we be concerned about it? Um, yep. What are the most recent developments, basically? Um, so let me just pull up. Uh, let me just pull up these charts here. So this first one, I got two charts up here, and one is that you actually uh, pointed out to me on Twitter, and I wanted to to put these two together because I think they're super super interesting. Um, so on the left here, you're looking at what folks are using their stimulus money for, and it gets broken out by um, income per household. So in case, uh, and there are three categories, which is they spent the money, the stimulus that the government gave them, they mostly saved it, or they used it to pay off their debt. And in case you're not looking at the visual here, what we're seeing is um, households that have less income, so less than $25,000, the vast majority of them actually use that to pay off their debt. And essentially, the wealthier and wealthier the household gets in terms of income, the less they're using it to pay off their debt and the more they're saving it. But the one thing that is almost constant across every demographic, income demographic of household, is that they're not spending it or the spending has basically stayed the same, which is really interesting. And on the right is this great chart that you pointed out to me, um, which is you're looking at spending comparisons between households that did receive UI benefits and ones that did not. And you can see that after uh, the federal UI expiration, that spending has softened for ones that are not getting um, the, the government benefits, essentially. So I think what you're seeing here is, is a picture overall of not a people that is are spending the stimulus, uh, right, kind of willy-nilly, but you're literally looking at um, private households that are trying to rebuild their own private balance sheets, essentially. How do, you, how do you take these two charts together, Mark? What do you think about this? Look, look, the... You know, the idea that, that COVID caused some big retrenchment is, is kind of funny. I mean, yeah, the lockdowns were, were horrible and they're a horrible idea and they're going to cause economic you know, peril for a long time. But we were in a recession already, right? I mean, we, we were in a place where we had the highest wealth and income inequality in the history of mankind. We talked about that before. And the, the lower and middle classes have been hurting for a long time and they've been surviving only on debt right they've been loading up debt on their house on their car and as interest rates fell their payment stayed the same so they they just put on more debt 
and and just extended the duration. I mean, you get car loans now for what, eight years? I mean, come on, cars barely last that anymore. Um, so I think what you absolutely are seeing is if you give people free money, right? If you hand them a check, they will do what's rational. So for the people who have a lot of debt, uh, they're going to try to get themselves unburied. Uh, and they're still going to buy food and, and essentials, um, pay their rent. Well, actually, they don't have to pay the rent because you couldn't foreclose. So people just said, oh, I'm not going to pay the rent. Or I'm not going to pay the mortgage. That ends badly. Because remember, mm -hmm. somebody's liability is someone else's asset. It's like this whole thing about student loan forgiveness. Right. I'm going I'm to forgive all the student loans. Really? Well, what about me as a pension holder that I own the bonds that securitized by those student loans? How is that fair? Right. Are you going to bail out the pension funds after you, you know, quote unquote, buy the votes from the people? So and we look, we know this experiment fails every single time. You know, that's the quote, Margaret Thatcher. Right. Mm -hmm. Socialism fails when you run out of other people's money. And so, yeah, the rich, what are they going to do? Of course, they're going to yeah. open E-Trade accounts and they're going to sit in their basement and they're going to going to day trade. and They're going to buy meme stocks. But. And actually, some lower income people were doing that, too. So that, that's that's probably less good decision than paying off debt or investing. But uh, anyway, I, I think it it shows how deep the problem is that it's not getting better. And as these payments fade, it's actually going to get worse. So I, I think we're at a very precarious place. Yeah, I think I have I have two takeaways from this chart, which is one, um, you know, whenever you talk about. Uh, anything that equates to something like UBI, right, or the government essentially helping out its populace just by giving money, uh, there's there's kind of this moral um, overlay to that, which is that, oh, people are just being lazy, um, and they're just going to spend that money on useless stuff. And I think these two charts show pretty definitively that that's actually not the case, uh, right, and that people are literally just trying to do basic financial provision for themselves. Uh, and number two, I think that a large part of the Fed's policy that has driven such easy monetary conditions uh, is this this idea of the wealth effect, right? So as people, as the stock market kind of goes up and people feel like they have more money, then they're going to start spending. And, and the stimulus is a big part of that. And I think what you're seeing here, at least with this chart on the left, is that that actually doesn't necessarily work, right? And if we were to implement some form of more permanent MMT or UBI or whatever you want to call it, that that's not actually going to necessarily juice the economy because people are so indebted that they actually want to save that money or use it to pay down their debt, and they're not necessarily going to spend it um, and get things moving that way. So, yep. yeah, it's just interesting, I guess, to, yeah, to look at. Um, all right, so let's let's move on to this next chart here, uh, which is super interesting, and I would love to get your opinion about this. Um, so we're looking at the loan to deposit ratio for domestic commercial banks. Obviously, you can see that kind of. Uh, taking a nosedive there uh, ever since um, 2020. Um, but there's there's kind of this uh, narrative right around, you know, commercial banks, they're just not lending, right? And, and folks have kind of floated a bunch of different reasons for why that might uh, why that might be. But I'm curious, like, what's your takeaway when you look at this chart? And why do you think generally um, we haven't seen the amount of lending that we might have wanted to out of commercial banks? <laughs> there's no demand to, to last chart, right? Everybody is drowning in debt already. You know, there's this great commercial from years ago. It showed, you know, this guy in the backyard and the, you know, the big house and the big barbecue and, and all this great stuff. And, uh, and you know, the guys, there are a bunch of guys around and they're all, you know, joking and, and drinking. 
And the guy says, and they look, and they pan over to this brand new car and the boat. And he's like, you know, how do you afford all this stuff? He says, I'm up to my eyeballs in debt. And yeah, so <laughs> if you if you're up to your eyeballs in debt, you probably don't want to go over your head. So if you tell me that you're going to loan me more money, you send me a, a you know, fill out this piece of paper and I'll send you more money from the bank. There's just no demand. And I think the other problem is uh, growth, right? Demographics are horrible in the U.S. and yeah. in and Europe, but, but mostly in the U.S. I mean, 10,000 people every day turn 65, right? 65-year-olds, on average, don't go out and start new businesses. They don't draw on their home equity to, you know, go start some new startup. Uh, they retire or they save or they try to plan to for retirement because now they're going to live longer and they don't have as much money as they thought. So, you know, just demographically, we don't have enough young people. Now it's coming, right? The millennials and the Gen Zs, they're coming. They're getting to the age where they're going to increase spending. But max spending occurs at age 46 and a half, right? So when your kids are in college, you got the big house, you're taking all vacations. It doesn't happen at 25 and it doesn't happen at 65. And so you can actually chart things like inflation. And right? everyone says inflation is a monetary phenomenon. Nope, it's a demographic phenomenon. When there are a lot of 25-year-olds, like in India, you have high inflation. Because 25-year-olds, as nice as they are, they're not very productive, right? Because they don't really have the skills. They're not, they're not mature in their careers. And you know, some of them are really talented and they start businesses. But, but by and large, 25 to 45-year-olds are less productive. 45 to 65-year-olds are really super productive. Right, that's the productive part of your economy, and then 65 to 85, turns out they're not very productive either. They're again perfectly nice people, but uh, that's what I think we're seeing here is we have rolled over, and for the next 17 years, right, this is not going to go away tomorrow. For 17 years, every day, 10,000 people in America turn 65. That you can't change that. You can't fix that. Now you could help it through increased immigration. But we're going the wrong way on that, too. Um, I, have a, I have a question for you. Maybe this is relevant. Maybe this isn't relevant um, for this chart in general. But, you know, one thing that we've talked about on the show before is basically the way that regulators in the banking system has dealt with managing risk in the financial system over the course of the last 50 years is consolidation. So if you, if you look at a chart at just the number of commercial banks in the U.S., it's going down and to the right, right, as they kind of get consolidated into these big mega banks like Citi and J.P. Morgan and Bank of America. And the customer um, for J.P. Morgan and Bank of America is not a small business, really, or an individual. It's large companies, right? And kind of the commercial banking part of their business is shrinking, becoming less important. And yep. most companies today, they have a huge amount of debt. So capital markets are kind of in, in this uh, transition from being an allocation mechanism to a refinancing mechanism as well. So as banks are getting more and more of their fees from these refinancings uh, that, they're, that they're doing for corporates or, or funds or whatever, um, it's less and less loans that kind of need to be made either to corporates or to individuals. Have you, do you subscribe to that narrative? Like, do you think that's oh, part Michael, of what that, we're seeing here? Like, what do you think such, about that? Whole? Such a great insight in that, you know, it's not just individuals who are over indebted. I mean, it's everybody. It's governments, it's corporates. Yeah. I mean, corporates, it's crazy how overly indebted they are. And 
you know, when, when, you, when you do the books of most of these businesses, you'd say their, their liabilities far exceed their assets, which again, I mean, back in Chicago, I went to business school in Chicago and Sidney Weil taught me that when your liabilities exceed your assets, your equity is worthless. And, you know, I, I, I can yeah, name lots of companies that, that fit that bill. And yet we, through our infinite wisdom, actually it's not through infinite wisdom, it's through corruption, it's through lobbying, right? These big corporations lobby Congress to pass laws like reducing corporate income tax if, if and here's the deal, Right? And this is actually the deal. Right? If they go out and issue debt at these artificially low interest rates that the Fed has engineered, right? the market would not allow those interest rates. The Fed engineered them by keeping them super low. So they borrow the money and buy back stock. And what does that do? That enriches Warren Buffett. That's what it does, right? Warren buys a yeah. bunch of stock of Apple. Apple has, and I misspoke on our, our last show. I said Apple had the same revenues. They don't. They had the same profits, net income. They have same net income as 2015, mm -hmm. but their earnings per share went up 25% because they bought back shares. That is mm -hmm. financial engineering. That is not growth. Why would you pay 35 times for a company that isn't growing? But we are fooled yeah. by the accounting gimmickry, and that's the other thing. The um, was it Keynes or Galbraith? Doesn't matter. I think it was Keynes who said that um, the bezel, mm. no, no, it was Galbraith. The bezel always exists, right? The bezel is the amount of stuff that's stolen and it rises and falls with the business cycle. And when it's really, really high, when people are stealing a lot and someone gets caught like Enron, then there are all these you know things about regulation and we need to crack down and, and it goes down for a little while and then it comes back and we have the height yeah. of corporate theft going on through transfer payments and stock-based compensation. You know, how can it be that you can recognize revenue in advance and then you get to amortize, you know, assets over a long period of time. So you, your asset, your um, expenses and your income don't match. I mean, there's all of this, that's just gimmickry to make things appear great when they're not. And when you look at data, and, and I love what I love about the work that you do every week is, is you, you comb through all this information and, and find these nuggets of data and say, it's not true, right? It's just not true that the banks are making all these loans to really healthy companies. They're just not. Yeah, they're not. Uh, and, you know, that's super, super important to check out, I think, too. Um, I do. So uh, I, I, I'd be curious to, to get your perspective on this as well, again, because you just have such yeah. a great, uh, you know, history uh, of investing here. But this is we're basically looking at the price of commodities relative to equities. And um, this is an imperfect measure. And I actually got this from Brent Johnson, who tweeted this out. And this chart gets shared around a lot on Twitter. And I do want to give... Uh, you know, it, people kind of look at these green bubbles and say, hey, uh, commodities are due for a bull run. But, uh, you know, if you look at that time period for when commodities have historically been low, you know, y you could have been doing this for six years, right? <laughs> you could have been six years early to this trade, right, for commodities. Yeah. So um, I'm curious, you know, what are your first impressions when you're just kind of looking at this chart? Do you, do you think commodities are like a good bet right now? Or what's your sort of framework for looking at this? I absolutely do believe that that real assets 
are uh, a good investment with with one caveat mm-hmm. uh, assuming that we go back to real functioning markets I think the the best part of this chart and it's very subtle uh, but you just pointed it out is if you look at the history to the left right you get these parabolic spikes they don't plateau there's no plateau at a higher level there's yeah. an immediate correction and that's yeah. the way commodity prices mm-hmm. have always worked right the cure for low prices in commodities is low prices because when there's low prices people go out of business supply falls and then there's increasing demand because of population growth and demographics and prices start to rise the cure for high prices is high prices and so when prices get too high demand falls and and or new supply comes on okay that's what usually happens excess supply comes on look what happened in the iron ore market you know 15 years ago just everybody decided to to mm-hmm. buy a bunch of you know my you know uh, uh, earth crust and chop it up and send it to china and then they got too much and they didn't need to buy anymore so you get these massive bear markets and then the same thing happens on the bottom is you get these you know the green bubble back there in in 2000 when you know gold was 200 bucks and it went on this massive bull run for 11 years from 2000 to 2011 hit 1900 bucks and everybody's like oh it's going to the moon no <laughs> then it went down the problem is now in the qe era we've broken the markets right? the markets are broken we don't have price discovery we have assets in the stock market that don't reflect fair value you know we we pay now 100 plus times revenue for companies right just if, if you actually did the math mm-hmm. you can't make a good return on that for hundreds plural of years and i used to yell about cisco in 2000 right at 20 i mean at 80 let me get this right at 260 times earnings Okay. Not, not, not revenues, but earnings. You would have to live uh, 111 years to get a 10% return. That's just hard. It's not impossible, but, it, but yeah. it's hard. And, but it, at, you know, 160 times revenues, which is what my son's company Snowflake sells at, you, you can't make that math work. There is no way. So markets are broken. And, and this, this flat part down here where paper is being devalued so fast that it it makes it appear that uh, commodity prices are really cheap, but paper asset prices are skyrocketing because we're all under this illusion that low interest rates mean we can discount the stream of future cash flows to these higher numbers and rationalize paying ridiculous prices for for paper assets and and we just have a we just have a surplus of paper and that that's a problem now there's one other thing that we don't really have much time to talk about but there's also the problem of commodity markets have changed in that there's just too much paper commodities right in the olden olden days if i wanted to sell you oil i actually had to have oil and I had to deliver it to you and you would use it. 
Now, I don't have to have any right. oil. I can just write a contract and I can sell you the oil. And, and then I can settle up before I actually have to deliver you the oil. But what happens sometimes, remember last year when oil prices went negative? How, how can that be? Well, yeah. because some people got out over their skis in terms of, uh, oh, I actually have to somehow go get oil, but there was no oil to get because the Saudis locked it all up in, in their evil genius play to uh, you know, buy up a bunch of assets at cheap prices. So it's a long answer to say, uh, I do like commodities. We are overweight commodities. We are overweight oil. We're overweight base metals in our long short fund. Um, mm. And that's been a great play. Oil is one of the best performing sectors this year. Um, but as long as QE goes on, you know, they're talking of tapering, which isn't going to happen. As long as we're in this busted financialization market. Um, and the last thing I'll say, and it goes back to demographics, the reason the Fed and Congress and everybody is doing everything they can to keep stock prices going up is that's their only hope to fix the asset liability gap at the government level, right? They made all these promises. That's what an entitlement is. An entitlement is a promise that you make to yourself that you don't fund and you ask your kids to pay for. Who wouldn't vote for that? All us boomers would vote for that. Yeah. And the problem is we don't function like a real company in the United States. Singapore operates like a real company. They take their social security, they, they take some social security money from, from their citizens. They then invest it in the greatest companies around the world. And they have a huge surplus of assets to pay out future retirees. We have a pay as you go system, right? Young people work, they contribute, old people take out. Problem is when it was set up, there were 17 workers for every retiree. Today, there are three. And when I reach retirement age, there'll be two. So I used to joke that that meant I was yeah. out of luck because I had two kids and, and uh, they'd give it to my wife, not me. So I had to have a third kid. And the problem is now I can't, I mean, I'm probably too old to have a fourth kid. Um, but at least my 10 year old will, will try to half support me in my old age. <laughs> nice. He's, he's the right age. Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm just nodding along. Um, and like one, one other share, like, personal story I'll share is uh, about commodities in general. It's very easy to look at this chart and just say, yeah, it's, it's very obvious that commodities are going to rise and go up. Uh, the first couple of years of my career, I worked as a consultant and our specialty was steel, very, very sexy industry. Um, and we put out this thing. It was the quarterly steel report, um, which was like the worst job if you got that. So it was always my job. Um, and one thing that never made sense to me is if you go down the value chain in steel, um, you know, the two largest inputs are coking coal and iron ore. And I always had this idea that, um, you know, when iron ore would go up, then the price of steel should also go up uh, because of uh, like the input, right? If the input cost goes up, then the end product should go up. But actually the causal chain works very differently there, which is when steel producers see the price of iron ore going up, they think, oh, I'm going to be able to charge more for steel. So what yep. they do is they bring a lot of their mothballed capacity online and by bringing online more capacity they actually end up putting the price of steel down over a period of time so unless you've worked it's like there's a lot of it looks very simple when you look at a chart like this 
the supply and demand dynamics across value chains are much more complicated. Uh, and I feel like people tend to really analyze the demand side of commodities, but they, they forget that there's a complicated aspect of supply. Uh, and you said it exactly right. The cure for low prices is low prices, and the cure for high prices is high prices when it comes to that. So I think it's something interesting to watch, but it wouldn't surprise me also if you know it stayed down here for a while. Yeah, look, Michael, it's exactly right. And and the problem with, not problem, but the, the challenge of these charts is it's, it's two things that are interacting. So we have the price of yeah. paper assets. Right. right. In the kid's game, you know, paper beats rock. Okay. I say in the real world, rock beats paper. Mm-hmm. And that has been historically right. Mm-hmm. You know, rock-based, commodity-based assets, commodity money has been better than fiat money forever. Uh Fiat money eventually goes to zero. Uh, the problem is here is you got you got people trying to push paper assets up, and the problem is commodities. To your point, the markets have been manipulated because by interest rates staying so low, the bad companies that should go out of business and their supply should come offline, okay, stay in business, and so the supply doesn't fall. And thankfully, you know. I don't want to be thankful about anything related to COVID, okay? But what happened with COVID is the demand fell so sharply because of the lockdowns, the demand for oil and gas and and other commodities, that finally a whole bunch of companies went bankrupt. And people said, oh, Mark, you're a heartless ass. Why, why, Why would you say that? And I, no, that's not heartless. That's capitalism. It's heartless, I think to let bad companies stay in business, which robs everybody of prosperity. That's heartless. You know, I think you let the market work. Don't manipulate it. Don't manipulate interest rates. Don't manipulate access to capital. Don't, you know, have accredited investor laws that, you know, protect the rich so that the average person can't invest in good deals. Uh, Manipulation is bad. That's the heartless part. Yeah, I agree. I've got, uh, we're, we're going to skip a couple of the charts here um, because I want to get to the China story, but I thought this one was really cool. And this will actually be uh, a segue into crypto because what you're looking at here um, is essentially the time and cost that it takes for creditors to resolve insolvency, right? Especially when it pertains to real estate. So basically, if there's a situation where a real estate developer like an Evergrande gets out over their skis, how long does it take for you know, the lender essentially to take that collateral, sell it and get made whole, right? And what percentage of the real estate does essentially cost them to do that? Uh, and what you're looking at here is they, they've kind of broken it out by by country. But, um, you know, basically, it takes somewhere between 1.5 and three years, right, in, in order for this entire process to happen. And it can cost anywhere from, you know, 10 to almost 25% uh, of, of the estate. So, the, the interesting thing to, to note here is that one, uh, you know, in terms of Evergrande, it's going to take a little while for this entire debacle over there to work its way through the system. Although, Mark, credit to you, when everyone was freaking out last week, uh, I think you were exactly on the nose um, with your take on the whole situation. But two, I think there's a connection to crypto here because, you know, crypto tends to get dinged, right, for these crazy volatile swings, right? And we're seeing that. Uh, today, but what, one of the huge benefits of crypto in general is actually the how quickly collateral kind of works its way through the system, yes. right? And these like auto liquidations, right? So something that takes two and a half years in the real world takes half a day uh, in crypto, or even much much uh, shorter than that. So 
curious to get your take on this whole chart and, and what do you think about the connection to to kind of crypto markets in general i i look i think again uh great great insight and look um bankruptcies insolvencies uh creditor workouts all that stuff uh they're people intensive uh there's graft and corruption yeah. uh, and built in the systems you know people have to get paid and and you know you can't foreclose on this. I, I remember when uh, we were investing in, in Japan uh, in the late '90s, and you know we backed uh, Cerberus and Goldman Sachs to go, you know, buy these distressed loans. And there was this unique thing in Japan in that they didn't want to they didn't want to lose face. They didn't want to admit that they'd made these bad loans. So the crazy thing is, they would set up these these. Uh, uh, subsidiaries in places like Hawaii or Singapore. And we'd go buy the assets for like 10 cents on the dollar um, because they, they would save face because they weren't really selling. And then we could immediately, like the same day, sell it back to the same organizations for 40 cents. It just blew my mind. That's crazy. But there was this one little glitch that um, there was this guy from... Uh, I think he worked at Cargill's unit that was out doing um, the the distressed debt stuff too. And he had a rental, he had, you know, like my Airbnb here. He had a rental and came home and, and the garage was burned down. And there was a note on the door mm. saying, next time we won't miss. Don't try to collect on our loans. So the Yakuza was basically saying, yeah, we know we owe you money but you're not gonna get it. So don't try to collect those particular loans. And you got the same problem here, particularly in a place like China, where a whole bunch of those Evergrande loans are to people who are pretty important. And I think what's gonna happen is there's gonna be the she good list and the she bad list. And you know, so that will probably extend the duration. The other thing you have and look, this, this is why this is the perfect segue into uh, the crypto conversation. So, you know, China is doing all of this because they have to preserve the banking system, right? The banking system is highly levered. It fomented that highly levered position to, to do something miraculous, right? So there's the negative side of it, but there's the incredible positive side. They took 750 million yeah. people out of abject poverty and moved them up into the middle class. It's absolutely mind-bending if you just think about it. And if you've ever been and you go 25 years ago to what is now Shanghai, I mean, literally it was just, there was just nothing. And there was, you know, there were all these just slums and, and it was it was amazing. Now it's this gleaming city of you know forty five plus million people. I mean, think about a city with forty five million people, and that is miraculous. But the only way you could do that was to build out the infrastructure ahead of the growth of that that population. Yeah. And the only way to do that was to create money, right? Create liquidity and create loans. And really the only way to do that was through command and control and eminent domain. And you couldn't wait 
five years for a citizen group to have a hearing to see if you could have a highway run through you know their farm you just kind of relocated the farm and 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 did the and did the city or the highway so but the problem is those banks now are very precarious and, and we talked about this last week you know in 2005 you know they they kind of went bust and they had to bail them out and uh, they can, right? They have huge reserves. You know, the government has trillions. And there are all kinds of views on, oh, but it's not all liquid. I'm like, yeah, it's not all liquid. So call half of the three trillion. That's enough to, to plug most of the holes. The problem is what they can't deal with is people moving their deposits out of the banking system into other places. And we've talked about the Alibaba you know, money market account, which they shut down. And then Ant Financial tried to kind of bring it back. And they're like, no. So that gets shunted aside. And the same things with crypto, right? If, if people are taking their fiat out of the bank and depositing it in, you know, blockchain financial companies like Binance or whatever, you you have a you have a, a asset liability problem. And so I think they are going to take a no, I don't think they are taking a very hard line stance. But then there's the more, I don't want to use this word, but I'll use it. The more sinister part of the plot, which is all of this attack on Bitcoin and crypto is because they want their digital renminbi to be the currency. And there's a reason for that. And, you know, if, if anyone has watched the BIS uh, video, big giant BIS guy, you know, basically talking about some very, 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 very dystopian 1984 kind of kind of garbage. Right. Well, of course, we want central bank digital currencies because we want to control the currency. We want to control when you spend it or if you spend it. Are you kidding me? I mean, just imagine the dystopian world where you work hard, right, all week, and you get your paycheck. And it says, if you don't spend this money in these following places by the end of next week, it vanishes. Are you kidding yeah. me? I mean, that is a dystopian, horrible scenario. And I, I, I do think that the governments, um, in their less than infinite wisdom, are moving in that direction. And, and this, this attack on decentralized sound money, right, which is superior in every way to uh, fiat currencies, is, is, is real and is gonna intensify. And I think, you know, we all in the, in the community say, governments can't ban Bitcoin. I think we mean it. Well, they can. And they are. And what we all say, well, is the people can go someplace else. They can go on the internet. And they can go through the, you know, they can go they can VPN somewhere. Well, they're actually cracking down on the VPNs. And they're cracking down on, you know, the, the apps. So it can get really hard to, to do. And, and it, this morning probably is the first time where I'm saying... This is the real test, right? And you know, somebody tweeted this morning the, the picture of 
yeah, since the last ban in 2013, you know, we're up 40,000. Yep. No, I'm not, not, not 2013, 2017. You know, when they banned it, it was 1400 bucks and uh, it fell to a thousand and, you know, now it's, you know, 41. So it's a $40,000. Yep, that's true. But that wasn't a real mm-hmm. ban, right? That was a ban on exchanges. That wasn't a ban on mining. It wasn't a ban on the apps using or holding crypto. Uh, this one has some teeth. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, Everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at the bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. Howdy, everyone. If you're a long-term investor in Ethereum, then listen up because I am talking directly to you here. If you've been listening to the show for the last two months, then you know that I am a big, big fan of ETH and the entire world of DeFi that's being built on top of it. It's honestly just super, super interesting, but it's also probably the single greatest wealth creation opportunity that I am ever going to see in my entire life. And the best thing about ETH is that you can hold it, but with this new upgrade to 2.0, you can also stake it and earn yield that way. The only problem is under the current set of rules, Unless you have 32 ETH, or at today's price is almost $100,000, then you can't stake it. Until now. Our good friends over at Matrixport just unrolled a solution which allows investors with as few as 5 ETH to start staking today. At the time of this recording, you can earn up to 9% APY, although that's going to vary based on the protocol. So, stop what you're doing, stop listening to me, go click the link at the bottom of this episode, if it's on YouTube or Spotify or Apple or whatever it is, Click that link, go over to the website, and tell them that I sent you. All right, give me a little credit. But definitely go click the link, start learning about how you can stake your ETH and earn yield or other yield generation opportunities. I I would agree with you. I, um, you know, I just just to give uh, the listeners, in case, I mean, we're, this is literally kind of breaking news that's happening right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we're still kind of, I'm still kind of honestly looking into what exactly uh, is going on there. But it does seem like they're targeting, it seems like they're relatively smart about how this ban is being enacted. And I would agree with you, it does feel like this one has teeth, whereas bans in the past maybe have not necessarily. Um, And, uh, you know, what they're actually targeting, it seems like, is kind of these offshore exchanges where a huge amount of volume kind of trades in crypto and actually apps that are used to to hold uh, crypto as well. So it seems like a relatively intelligent attack um, if China was going to do that. Um, you know, the statement from the PBOC, which is the People's Bank of China, said that there are, quote, uh, legal risks for individuals and organizations participating in virtual currency and 
trading activities. It added that all Chinese nationals working for overseas cryptocurrency exchanges would be, quote, investigated according to the law, as would organizations providing marketing, payment, and technical support to them. So, you know, the, la the last quote that I'll read here uh, that comes again directly from the statement issued by the PBOC um, is that they consider these individuals, again, quote, suspected of undermining the financial order. So, I mean, again, this is something that we've, we've kind of said before, but uh, I mean, there are four stages to, to every big movement, right? Which is first they, uh, you know, laugh at you or ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. Um, yep. And I think those of us who've been operating in this industry for a long period of time, we're very comfortable with the ignoring and the laughing stage. Frankly, that's been the last, uh, you know, 12 years. Um, and I think those of there have always been people in crypto who said, well, you know, you can't ban Bitcoin and no regulation and yada, yada. I think a lot of us have known that regulation is coming uh, in some way, shape or form. It might not be super cozy and super fun when it's happening and the industry needs to advocate for itself in general. And I'm of the opinion that, look, there are two huge economies in the world, right? Um, you know, two superpower economies, which is the US and China. Neither one of them are looking super favorably at crypto right now. And, you know, that argument of, oh, well, if you ban it, you know, it'll crop up elsewhere. Maybe. But how much time is that going to take, right? If the US yeah. and, and China both take draconian regulation against crypto, I mean, yeah, maybe it might take 10 years, 10 or 15 years, right, for it to for it to crop up again somewhere else. So I'm of the opinion that, look, we need to take a stand somewhere here. I, I, it's probably not going to happen in China. That's why I think there's so much focus on what's going on in the US regulatory landscape. And frankly, it feels like a fight that we just have to win. I don't know. What's your opinion? Ah, look, it, 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 it's very well summarized. And, and it is, it is a fight that we have to win. And, and it is a fight that, that I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable. I, I, I won't actually say confident, uh, but I'm comfortable that that we will win. And when I say we, I mean I mean the community, right? Because this is a community uh, movement, and and it's a movement in the sense that you know it's a technological evolution, as we've talked about, right? And and technological evolutions don't go away, and the incumbents will always use regulation to try to fight. And, and you know, I just did a presentation mm -hmm. on this recently, and, and I went through all the history from literally the Telegraph, right? And the guy at the Telegraph company at Western Union, which now still exists, um, you know, saying, oh, you know, there's no need for a telephone. And it's not, it's not you know, it's not going to work. And, and then, you know, we'll erect barriers to telephony. And, and then those fell. And and then there was the the guys in, in Europe who said, you know, no one would ever pay money to get on a train when they could just take their horse in a day, <laughs> like King Leopold or something like that. And it's like, oh, no, we have lots of train tracks over the next 50 years. And then there was television and radio. And and look, when, when over-air television uh, was threatened by cable, right, these cowboys like John Malone, what did they do? They threw up regulatory barriers and they tried to stop it. And, and they said, this is, this is a utility. It's a government utility. We need the government to control content. Like, why? So you can spread propaganda? I mean, well, why does the government have to control it? Um, and, you know, cable won. Uh, and then cable had to fight against streaming and, and then streaming won. So eventually the technology wins. The difference this time, 
and 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 it's a, it's an important difference is the internet right was labeled a fad and one of the things when something's labeled a fad just buy it with both hands just whatever it is right if anything's called a fad just buy it with both hands right yeah. that's just that's just a good rule of thumb so it was labeled fad and then it was labeled you know a passing fancy and you know it'd be gone by the end of the year uh, at one point, I think in, in 97, someone said, oh, yeah, this will this will be gone by the end of the year. Uh, and then Krugman said, you know, never be more important than the fax machine. Um, but no, what it did is it it made information two way. Right? For the first time well, for the second time, information used to be controlled by the church and right? the printing press broke that cabal. And then everyone could have books and everyone, but it was still one way, right? You print a book, you give it, I give it to you and, and you can read it. Um, but we didn't have two way communication and you know, telephone and television, you know, the whole thing is you know, you're sending, you know, television, you're sending stuff out there into the ether and people say, why would anyone pay for that? It's not going to anyone. Well, no, it's coming to a lot of people. But what the internet did is it allowed us to post information on these, these websites and people could exchange ideas and they could communicate and they could build. And, and so it, it changed everything in the world of media, right? The whole media business got disrupted and commerce, right? Commerce, you know, it used to be, I had to go to the general store. Now I don't have to go to the general store. I mean, there's still things like this coffee I had to have my brother-in-law go get because, you know, could order it on Amazon and have it, well, I guess I could have it delivered an hour later uh, in some cities, but uh, it, it disrupted those industries. Well, those industries, they have good lobbies and they have, they have a reasonable number of, of people that, that are dependent on it. But what crypto is addressing is financial services and banking and banking and governments are pretty tightly linked and they probably yep. aren't going to roll over and say, yeah, you know, just replace us. And, and this is the part you're like, you're right, right? When they're ignoring us, it's awesome, right? Oh, we're, we're the radicals and we're doing all this fun stuff and look how smart we are and you guys are idiots and, you know, have fun staying poor. Yeah, okay. Then they're laughing at you, right? Crashes. Ah, ha, ha, ha. See, you know, you're an idiot. It's going to zero. Okay. Yeah. Those, those are not painful. Those are fun. You're hanging out with people you like and, you know, we're talking to each other and we're preaching to the choir and, you know, we're all happy. This next stage, the fight, this is going to suck. And it's going to suck a lot. That's a technical term, suck. This is going to suck because... Banks have been in power for the better part of 700, 800 years. And the families that control the banks, the Rothschilds and the Morgans, and you know, they're, they're formidable. And the organizations that have built up around those banks, central banks, right? I, this friend has this great line. He says, I remember a day when I didn't know the names of central bankers. I long for those days to return. Yep. Yeah, no shit. We now deify these people. And 
the most powerful organizations in the world are not the governments, they're the banks, right? There have been movies made about this, right? So this is real. You know, it's one thing to say, I'm gonna take that hill. I'm gonna go to war against them. It's another thing when the guys on horses with the big spears come over the ridge and you see them. Now the fight's real. And, you know, for all the gamers out there, you know, clash clans and, you know, all this sword fighting and stuff, you don't really die. Like here, if you're, if you're a miner, if you spent all your money buying mining machines in China, it's gone. It's gone. You just, you just lost your life savings in some cases. Or if they actually do deem these people a threat to national security and arrest them, take their rights away, we're not that far behind. And they, they, you know, I have nothing against Gary Gensler. I have nothing against the SEC. I said, I think the SEC has actually been very measured and prudent to this point. You know, but they call him Goldman Gary for a reason. And Goldman happens to be a bank. And there's logic here to say that now the shit gets real. And um, again, I don't want to be a, a yeah. doomsayer. Cause I, I, I do think we win, but I think the fight part is different than playing while you're being ignored or laughed at. Which I just totally co-opted your great insight and made it mine. <laughs> no, no, no. I no. Yeah, I, I'm I'm nodding my head because I just I completely agree with you. And again, I think we would both agree. It's it's almost not. I understand why everything's happening, right? You have different. You have competing sets of incentives here, right? And it's not like these, you know, the banksters to use your word. They're, it's not like they're evil, bad people. They just have a very different set of incentives um, than folks who have aligned themselves with crypto. And I think we both believe that. You know, in the long term, this is going to be the system that takes over. But I agree. I, I think it's and, you know, I want to be careful because in, in our industry, people have this kind of annoying habit of saying even when bad news happens, it's good news. Then when good news happens. Yeah. So, it, you know, if you were to only take Twitter at face value, you'd think everyone thinks everything is good news all the time. And yeah. I, I really liked your explanation because I agree. I think the fighting phase is not going to be a lot of fun. But ultimately, I think many of us saw it coming probably if you were somewhat rational you knew that the entrenched incumbents they're not going to just roll over right and yeah uh, and kind of give up everything that they have but i also think this was a necessary step um and i've always kind of thought that some regulatory action or uncertainty is going to be the last big buying opportunity before this all goes mainstream and is totally accepted so yeah. i think that's something else to consider too not financial advice not saying go out and necessarily buy at uh, this exact moment but like directionally, I, I kind of think that that's, I've always yeah. kind of thought that was something that was going to happen. Um, I, I just wanted to, I, I know we're running short on time. I want to get your opinion on this next uh, story here, because I feel like it's another big development that almost weirdly flies in the face of what we're, what we've been talking about so far, mm -hmm. which is that these mega VCs are moving in. Um, so two big VCs, uh, Tiger Global and uh, SoftBank. Um, so Tiger Global I don't know if you know this, they were actually the most active VC out of every fund uh, last quarter or in Q2 of this year. So they did 81 deals. That's compared to 64 from A16Z, uh, 61 from Sequoia. Um, they're super, super active uh, in VC overall. 
and they've recently led a couple of pretty large deals uh, in crypto in general. Yeah. So if I can get to my notes here. Um, yeah, the name of the company that they led an investment in was TrueLayer. But I know, uh, you know, not public yet. This is a $130 million round that they led, uh, open uh, open banking-based firm in, in the UK. Uh, and I know there's more to come from them. Uh, SoftBank has been involved. So they, I think, led the the round, $680 million round for SoRare, um, yeah. which is pretty wild. And then I know they led a round uh, that you participated in as well in BlockDemon, which was for $155 million. So yep. To me, that that's a big dynamic because you're starting to see like real big money come in, and uh, SoftBank is not famous for their thrifty um, valuations, right? Like they come in, they throw a lot of money, they push valuations up. So, what's your thought just on like these VCs kind of moving in at the same time when it looks like governments are cracking down? It's like more and more money is also flowing into crypto. So, how how do you think about that dichotomy there? Yeah, uh, follow the money, follow the talent. Right, really simple. The the money flowing into the space is monstrous. The building going on by some of the most talented people on the planet uh, is like nothing I've ever seen. Right? I mean, the internet movement was huge. This is this is bigger, and this incumbent backlash is totally natural, totally normal, totally expected. But here's the difference. It's one thing to say. I'm self-sovereign. I'm a Bitcoiner. I'm self-sovereign. Okay. Where do you live? Where do you work? Where do you spend your money? Where do you buy your food? Do you live on a farm by yourself, grow your own food? Most of us don't do that. So self-sovereign, it's great to say, but we're not there yet, right? We're not in a borderless nation stateless world. We still have borders, we still have nation states, we still have passports, we still have banks, and banks are not going to go down easily. And so, yeah, we we are all, I mean, I'm, I call myself a venture capitalist now, right? I, I've been involved with Tiger Global since day one. They're fantastic, they're, they're awesome. A16Z, awesome. Pantera, awesome. These are really smart people doing really smart investments. And it's all going to work, it's all going to, be an afterthought in the future, it'll be invisible to us, right? We don't talk about the internet. We won't talk about blockchain. We won't talk about crypto. We'll, it'll, just, it'll just be. It'll be part of what we do. But disrupting media and commerce was painful. This will be more painful. Disrupting financial services is going to be a painful, painful process. But I love, I love ending on a bright note, which is... Uh, really smart people doing really smart investments, uh, and um, you know I'm happy we're we're involved in a few of them, so that's fun. Hey guys, unfortunately we lost Mark there due to some technical difficulties. But as Mark mentioned at the top of the show, he is in Chicago. He's celebrating his brother-in-law's 50th birthday. He did text me and say he had a big deep dish pizza, so. We can all be happy for him here, but I just wanted to wrap up the rest of the show for you guys so it didn't feel abrupt at the end here. Just to go over some of the stuff that we talked about, I think that for the entire time that I've been in crypto, regulation has never been at such a crucial inflection point as it is right now today. There are two large global economies that really, really matter when it comes to crypto, the US and China. And China is signaling pretty strongly that they don't want anything to do with crypto. And to me, 
that makes perfect sense. One, because they're a centrally planned economy, control is very critical. But two, even from a more pragmatic standpoint, they have a closed capital account. They do not want to allow capital to flow freely in and out of that country. I feel like this is this is ripe for the taking for the U.S. And what I would encourage everyone in the industry to think about is um, how you can get involved and make your voice heard. Because I know there's a lot of anti-government sentiment these days, but I do believe in our government. I do believe that if we make our voices heard, then we can affect a difference. So if you're operating in this industry, if you have a stake, do things like donate to Coin Center, stand up, make your voice heard. Um, what I love about Mark's take this week is, again, this is just, uh, you know, last week, Mark's comments on Evergrande, I think, ended up being absolutely on the money as people were calling this the next Lehman Brothers, etc. Mark said, hey, this isn't such a big deal. And I think ultimately he's going to be proven relatively correct there. We haven't seen the global contagion many were predicting. And I think Mark's comments on China were absolutely correct this episode as well. What I will say is you're going to see a lot of stuff on Twitter, you know, probably saying, uh, hey, uh, you know, China bans Bitcoin for the hundred millionth time, right? I've seen plenty of tweets like that already today. And then you're going to see some saying, uh, uh, this is the end of the road for China. We've been predicting this all along. See, of course, governments were never going to allow this, etc. As always, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. I do, though, want to share this this great uh, tweet from Dan Moorhead, uh, which is, if I knew absolutely nothing about a disruptive technology other than that China was trying to ban it, I'm buying. And he's got this great uh, hero I'm showing you here now, uh, but returns since China bans on disruptive tech. So we've got he's got the ban or the returns on Twitter, Facebook, Google, Snapchat and Bitcoin throughout the years. And there are some extremely uh, impressive returns here. So I think long term, it's probably nothing to worry about. But I think Mark's assessment that uh, in the meantime, it's not going to be super pleasant and we're all in for some volatility is dead on the money. Um, guys, thanks so much for listening to this. Um, I've had a ton of fun doing these with Mark uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'd love to get your feedback. Uh, we ultimately do this show for you. So if you're listening to us on iTunes or, or Spotify, make sure to give us a rating and a review. Write down what we could be doing better. Uh, same thing on YouTube. Um, we we really do read all of them, as and we take action, as you can see from my haircut. <laughs> so uh, thanks for listening, guys, and uh, any feedback is welcome. Cheers. We'll see you next week.